90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Just plugging along. Same stuff, different day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. I am actually getting ready to pack my bags because I am leaving the middle of this week. So we'll be gone when the show airs to teach a workshop in Pennsylvania. Didn't you just get back from there? I mean, back from living from there? Uh, Yeah, of course, the first (laughs) workshop that I get to go teach in my new role is in Pennsylvania. Oh, Uh, I love it. (laughs) But it's it's not at Penn State. It's at Millersville. I don't know where that is. I didn't either, actually. (laughs) What? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, but that's that's where we'll be going. Have a nice three thirty in the morning departure uh, from the house to get Woo-hoo. to the airport. <laughs> that's beautiful. I mean, at least you don't have to drive quite as far as you did when you lived in Pennsylvania, right? Well, the airport was closer, but I never had good flight luck there. Yeah, Whereas we'll here, see. you know, there are flights to everywhere. That is so. True. Yeah, um, it it should be a lot of fun though. We're going to teach a three day workshop. There's three of us going. And I will be switching off with one of my coworkers for the first two days, alternating teaching lessons on things like pulling down satellite imagery and making plots of it, surface plots, weather balloons, QT plots, um, doing some Python basic stuff mixed in there. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we've been putting a lot of work into making the material behind it. Um, so I remember doing skew T plots by hand back in the day. Me too. (laughs) So I suppose this is going to take you like five seconds, right? Yeah, it's, it, I really like upper air data. So I've been spending a lot of time working on the skew T portion of our, of our software tools. And so now I've done things like, you know, you can just do skew T dot shade cape, skew T dot shade sin. Uh, Wow. Uh, you know, you, and one of the, uh, the the primary developer of the software had already put in you know, skewt.moistadiabats, and they're drawn. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's really a pretty great piece of of technology. And you know now we can pull down new data from Go 16, so you can get oh, one nice. minute mesoscale region refreshes of imagery of the Earth. It's incredible. Oh wow, you couldn't do that by hand fast enough. <laughs> No. (laughs) (laughs) That's impressive. So who are you going to teach for? I mean, who are you teaching? That's what I meant. Oh, well, we'll be teaching a combination of students and faculty. Okay. Awesome. Yep. And so we have two days on Python stuff. The third day is still Python, but it's a Python AWIPS, which is Uh, the mm -hmm. thing the Weather Service uses. I don't remember the acronym right now. (laughs) Yeah. mm -hmm. Weather something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that is... That's the plan for the rest of the week, and hopefully the flights go better than they have in the past. <laughs> yeah, so I wish you good luck on that. I'm sure we'll hear all about it next week if they don't. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's just that time of semester where everything is getting down to crunch time. Oh, yeah. April's just the worst, really. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> but, you know, it hasn't stopped our listeners from writing in with some feedback. Yay. <laughs> Um, I'm glad to hear from Hannah again that she's alive. We haven't heard from her in a while. Yeah, she said she was really behind on podcasts and was just <laughs> now getting to the uh, the SEM episode. That's okay. 
That's okay. Um, Hannah's lamenting that SEMs are so expensive. Yes, we feel that. <laughs> we feel that greatly. Um, and she said something, which I didn't really know any numbers on this, um, that it usually costs about over $100 an hour for external users and about 30 to 50 for internal users, which is about what we charge. Um, but we haven't had any external users yet, which I'm going to tell you, we're going to go try to find some now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um cuz that's um yeah. And I mean the reason is is the the service the service contracts on these machines are so expensive. I mean, they're basically somebody's salary for a year essentially, but they're indispensable when you don't personally know a lot about your machine. It's nice to be able to call and have somebody just show up and magically make things right again. <laughs> Oh, definitely. And, so. you know, you do have to do things like keep them stocked with liquid nitrogen. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Ours doesn't, thank goodness. Well, we don't use ours in that capacity, so we don't have to worry about that too much. But Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, that's nice. Yes, it's quite <laughs> nice. <laughs> Speaking from someone that has to keep a magnetometer stocked with liquid helium all the time. Right. <laughs> that's pretty annoying. <laughs> so we also heard from listener Steve, who said that in a Scientific American column, Steve Mursky talked about the screwball scholarship for a paper called sniffing out significant p values <laughs> pee uh, and i think we're gonna we're gonna leave it there <laughs> because that will be a fun paper that we come revisit oh yes absolutely anyway he also pointed out that in the bmj these fun papers that we've been finding appear in the so-called notorious christmas issue <laughs> So I think that will help us with our fun paper searching in BMJ. Yeah, it certainly has. I just started to get that uh, get that feeling that you know that these were went back quite a ways. Um, but John's forbidden me to BMJ for a while. So, <laughs> <laughs> and we also heard from listener Taryn, who suggested last week's fun paper, and I'm going to put some of these photos on uh, our social media accounts. So go check those out: Facebook, Twitter. They are some really nice photos of Kelvin Helmholtz instabilities, our favorite thing. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We had some good mammatus today, but no no KH waves. (laughs) Yeah. So all of that will be out there, like I said, on Twitter, on Facebook, and you should send us your cloud photos, geology photos, or just general feedback. We really like hearing from you all. Yep, exactly. Um. So, John, when I was ruminating on what you had to do this week, which is to go out and teach, I started thinking more about my job and some things I thought it was really interesting that we've had a lot of listeners interested in how academics, you know, do their jobs, like what is part of their job. And I realized we've kind of left out academic service in that equation. We haven't really talked about it. And so I thought that was something that we could talk about today. Right. Those The shows where we talk about the academic lifestyle, if you will, I guess, yeah. are mm-hmm. are relatively uh, popular, and we get a lot of feedback on those. And we haven't addressed all, you know, as you like to say, the three horsemen <laughs> of the <laughs> academic apocalypse, uh, which are teaching, research, and service. Exactly. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about teaching, right, and a lot about research, obviously, because those are the main things that people do in academia, but there's also this service thing. And I guess if you don't really, if you're not familiar 
with academics, that seems very esoteric. And so I thought it was something that we could define. And I feel really strongly about service. And I, <laughs> your entire job is essentially service. So I know you feel the same way. Um, yes. And a lot of people kind of <laughs> blow it off. So I thought we should give it some due. Absolutely. It's one of those things that a lot of times I feel like it gets looked at on somebody's tenure review as a checkbox. And whatever you can shove into that checkbox to make sure it gets checked, that's fine. We check it and we move on to what really matters, which isn't <laughs> the teaching. It's how many papers you've published. Exactly. And what's the number of research dollars you're bringing in for your university? So. Right. Remember, you know, our views are our own on this. Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. <clears throat> yes. So this is something that, it, like you said, it's touchy for both of us because what I do now, I I am in a community service position. I right. work on software for the community. I go teach these classes like we're doing this week for the community. And mm -hmm. it's something that academics in general, a professor should be devoting, what, about 20% of their time to? Right, exactly. Um, so they're, you're kind of split in your job with what you spend your time on, right? So teaching, research, and service. And in a traditional tenure-track job, that's usually 40-40-20. So 40% teaching, 40% research, 20% service. Um, and so that's what you should be doing. But what exactly is it? <laughs> Yeah, I'm saying you know, it's it, it's still pretty vague, and service yeah. can be a lot of, of things. It can yeah. be you know all kinds of committees or being reviewers, and we'll go into those. But some of the stuff that gets called service generally falls more <laughs> into teaching, I think. Uh, right, and I know I know when we talk, especially when you talk about grants, you always would harp on stuff about. You know, everyone is supposed to say, what is, what are you going to do to promote your research? You know, and people do stuff, oh, I'm going to do a blog. Okay, so you write one blog and you're like, check, there you go. That's my right. community service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, the simple fact that we have this podcast and have still been going on for more than six months <laughs> shows that we both think that that's kind of crap. That's not enough. It's not what you should be doing, especially if you're receiving public funding. Absolutely, because if you're receiving public funding, you have a responsibility to those people that are funding you to tell them what you're using their dollars on and why it's worthwhile. Right, exactly. And I mean, you know, I'm a state employee. Not all professors are, but, you know, I work at a state university, so it's the same thing. And it's not just promoting your own research that falls into the service thing. It's just like John said. It's all kinds of different committees and other things that go along with it. And those are also important jobs because – you know, the faculty have to get together and sort of decide which way they think the university should go. And that's a really important duty to have your voice heard in those situations. Well, and it's one of those things that not a lot of people want to do because it's very time consuming. Yeah. It's not glamorous. No. <laughs> but working on these committees is really what makes things tick behind the backgrounds of any academic organization. Exactly. And they can be useless. And that's as useless as the people that are on them make it to be. Or they can be very, you know, culture changing, which is fantastic. So like in my department, I serve on the undergraduate studies committee, which, you know, we already have a curriculum in place. So there's actually not a lot to do for that committee. I haven't 
done much at all in the past three years just because we already have our curriculum in place, you know. But if we wanted to add a class or take away a class or something like that, we'd start to talk about it on that committee. And then on the university level, like I'm the future chair of the Provost Advisory Council on Women's Issues, (laughs) which is a handful. So, But that's also, I mean, that's a really big deal, right? I mean, today as we're recording this is like National Gender Pay Inequality Day. (laughs) So this is still a problem. And committees like these can, you know, enact a lot of change. So they're super important. But just like John said, sometimes they take a lot of time. They really do. And, you know, one committee that we've both served on was an academic integrity committee or council for each of our universities. And Mm -hmm. it works a little different at every university. But what it boils down to is when there are accusations of cheating or academic misconduct, this committee hears the students and the faculty's stories and ultimately are responsible for making a ruling on what's going to happen to resolve the issue. Right. And I mean, this is life changing for the students involved with these um, accusations and stuff. I mean, in ours, I've, I've been on committees where students, you know, there's not enough proof to prove cheating and, They just go on with their lives. And then I've also been on committees where we've expelled students from the university. Yeah. And it's not, it's not an enjoyable committee to be on. It's relatively gut wrenching when somebody's not going to graduate or somebody's not going to get into a law school because now they have this mark on their record or all of these other things. It's really unpleasant. And hence most people avoid the service. And I don't know if you felt like that. I'm probably because we share many views and also because of what you just said. I mean, this is, this is super uncomfortable for me. I'm not good with people that are emoting around me. So like, right. you know, <laughs> crying or getting really angry or anything. And invariably, these committees always turn into this, which, you know, they should. It's a big deal. And um, I made myself do it because it made me uncomfortable. And it has certainly... I don't know, open my eyes to a lot of different things that students go through that maybe I would never think about because they're not things I experienced. Absolutely. And so and I, it's, while it's a lot of time and it is really uncomfortable, it's really important because it makes me a better professor now that I've experienced these things. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you say it's a lot of time. We're not talking about a few cases every semester. We're generally talking about tens of cases, each one taking multiple hours. Right. Uh, So we're losing working weeks per semester to this committee Mm -hmm. commitment, but it's something that's very important. It's one of those things that has to churn for the university to keep working. There's a variety of other committees. I mean, everything from technology advisory committees, Mm -hmm. uh, hiring committees, yeah, those take a it's, lot of time. <laughs> yeah, they, they all can can get pretty involved, but that's still not the extent of service. Right. Um, and so if you've kept that number in the back of your head, you know, oh, 40, 40, 20. I mean, 20 is one whole day a week, right? But right. it just from what it sounds like we've already been describing, I mean, it, it can be, obviously, it's not one whole day every week, but... You know, it can it can take over your life because in addition to that, you can do stuff like serve as a reviewer, 
or an editor or even just, you know, a guest editor, something like that, um, on many of these different scientific publications that are in your field. Um, I know that might get counted as research in some cases. It just depends on your specific department, but that's also well, a service I, to your scientific community. Reviewing is one of those things that until recently wasn't counted as anything. Yeah. You were just expected to do it. <laughs> Which, uh. I mean, and it, that makes sense to me too, because that's part of, you know, you're going to play the game. You've got to play the whole game, right? Um, but you should still get credit for doing it because this is really time consuming right right absolutely so i don't know i just got asked for to review my first sort of proposal and that was really scary because i thought oh my goodness <laughs> like oh <laughs> i'm a real committee member now of like the whole scientific community um but again it took a while because while i could speak to the process i still didn't know some some things of it and i wanted to have background and provide a good review so it took even longer yeah. And, you know, that's proposal panels oh. <laughs> that you can review a proposal or sometimes you get put on these panels for whatever division of National Science Foundation or NIH or whatever that you're involved with, where you'll fly to D.C. or wherever they're located and be there for a week discussing all of these proposals that were submitted in your field evaluating them and helping decide which ones get funded. It's important to do because somebody else put in that time to fund your proposal so right. you can do your work. Right, exactly. I mean, so, if you're if you're lucky enough, like my colleague right now, she just got back from um, Austria because she was on a proposal committee there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the time <laughs> it's somewhere domestic and, you know, you're inside a Marriott conference room for <laughs> exactly. the duration. <laughs> for 20 hours a day <laughs> right so there's that one editors reviewing papers uh, there's also a lot of i've started hearing them called task forces <laughs> <laughs> that makes it sound like superheroes <laughs> uh, yeah i know i mean here pretty soon we're going to call them tiger teams or some other nonsense <laughs> but uh, i love it <laughs> really focused you know committees are generally thought of as a longer term commitment Right. Uh, these are generally shorter term. I, we're going to evaluate the feasibility of remodeling a floor of the building right. or something like that, where it's a very well-defined set of work. It's going to be very concentrated and the task force will be formed, do its job and disbanded in short order. <laughs> Uh, so that brings up an interesting thing. I remember having a discussion with a colleague at GSA, and he was on a sort of technology committee for all of the Geological Society of America. And he was talking about it and said it was the most successful committee he'd ever been on because it had an end. Like they set this goal, and it was basically bringing GSA into the digital world. So this was obviously several years ago. Um, right. And they had this goal, and he was like, it got successfully implemented, and we got to the point where we're like, we've done this. Like, we're good. We're good to go. We should disband. I feel like all committees should have that as kind of a goal. I, I think so. Otherwise, it becomes aimless wandering for work. Exactly. And then that's where your service is not only wasting your time, but it also gets sort of downplayed because there's no outcome 
to it, right? There's no actionable item that ever comes out of it. So that's why it's like, oh, service, check, whatever. Right. Well, and service can also be, there's an incredible amount of government in universities. I mean, you can serve on the faculty senate. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is a very large time commitment, but again, very important to helping shape university policy on everything from funding to class structures to uh, fundamental core requirements for degree programs. Right, exactly. And I mean, you mentioned faculty senate, um, but we both were also involved with this, you know, integrity council thing we're talking about as students as well. And so if you think back to applying for college or doing anything like that, some of us have to think way far back. <laughs> these <laughs> service things, the things we call an academia service, I mean, these are the things that set you apart, right? Was your community service and like what extracurriculars were you involved in? And this is sort of the the academic equivalent of extracurriculars, I feel like. It's true. This is, you know, the key club yes. of, <laughs> of academia. So Right, exactly. There's there's all these things that you can do. And then also as part of service, there's outreach, which we've talked about a lot in different shows. Right. I mean, I still think we have an outreach show on the books, too, <laughs> which yeah. is probably a show that it's a standing committee show. We're going to have that outreach show, you know, every <laughs> every year or so because there's so many different things to do. And I think despite the fact that we've both been involved with a lot of the other aspects of service. I think this is definitely one that we're both very passionate about. Absolutely, because you have to get how your research can be utilized out there. And you know, it's sort of what we do with Fun Paper Friday, where we take something that generally looks, looks absurd. And on a lot of them, we can say, okay, this looks absurd, but here are some real world consequences of this research. Right. And we can't do it every time. But... <laughs> A lot of times, uh, those connections are what's important and often underemphasized or turned into clickbait headlines. Right. I mean, that's the key right there, which sucks because probably people listening to this show don't fall for that kind of thing. But, um, you know, you can absurdify a lot of this research, but there's actually a point to much of it that gets lost if you can't adequately you know, express what that point is. And so this makes this even more important because people are like, I'm not going to fund that. That's stupid. Particularly our fun paper today sounds hilarious, but there's right. a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, very important science behind it as well. And so you have to do this outreach to make sure that the science is what the message is. Right. Yeah. So, you know, we said that that's a lot to jam into 20%. Yes. <laughs> yes and, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, as Click and Clack would say in the third half of today's show, <laughs> it's generally when you add all the numbers up in real life, they never add to 100. They always add to something that's much larger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of jokes about this, um, you know, because I've seen so many things where, like, the – the number one job for least stress is professor. You know, you get to do whatever you want. Okay, well, I wish. But. Those people have clearly never actually talked to a professor. <laughs> right, exactly. Clearly have never taught anything. 
Um, it's, it's my favorite moment is when students come back and they're like, hey, I had to teach this thing and I can't believe how much work it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, yes, thank you. Or you're welcome, basically. <laughs> um, I've linked in one of my favorite PhD comics, which is um, the How Professors Spend Their Time. I'm sure you've seen this one. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a pie chart of this teaching research service. And I'll just uh, I'll just let you go and take a look at that because it's quite good. It's hanging on my door, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that sort of split is it's different between everybody. Like I said, the traditional tenure track faculty is usually 40, 40, 20. But other other faculty, I am putting air quotes around that if you can't tell from my voice. Um <laughs> can have different guidelines. So I'm one of these other faculty and I get to set my own guidelines, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, I'm teaching intensive. So my split is more like 70, 20, 10. But as I've written in the show notes, I feel like it's 80, 10, 100. So yeah, I can definitely, definitely see that. Research always seems to take over. Unfortunately, that often means teaching takes a backseat. Yeah, right. Exactly. And service is the thing that you know, it's the blog post you wrote on Saturday night. Exactly. <laughs> and in my case, since mostly the magnetometer is down, teaching tends to take over. So that's good. But <laughs> Right. And, you know, at, at my current job, we do things like write blog posts, put out software. Like you said, it's, it's, I'm really uh, pretty much 100% service. So there is some teaching in there. Yeah. So I, I would say I'm, I'm more like 0, 20, 80. <laughs> there you go. um it's 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 so interesting you know when I started to actually think about this like how passionate I think I am about this aspect of my job um and I thought that was interesting and I wanted to hear your take on that as well and then when basically you thinking about you pointing out it's your whole job is service and it's it's an important thing especially for those of us that get our funding from public institutions Oh, yes. So what, out of all these things that qualify as service, what's your favorite and which one do you think is the most important? Oh, oh, are those two different answers? Can those be two different answers? Th- those can be two different answers. Oh, man. Th- this is going a little off script. It is. Huh? Oh, you got to <laughs> hit me with that. Um, this is interesting. Okay. My favorite and which is the most important? Hmm. That's hard. You know what? I think hmm, I think my favorite may be serving on the Integrity Council just because it was something I didn't want to do hmm. and it was something that I made myself do. Yeah. And it's just given me such a different appreciation for the struggles of both professors and students. Hmm, that's an interest that is not at all what I would have expected you to say. <laughs> I don't think it's what I would have expected to say either. It's a good thing you caught me off guard or else I would have scripted something. (laughs) Okay, so that's your favorite. So what's the most important part? Uh, You know, probably this Provost Advisory Council for Women's Issues right now I think is the most important one. It's not necessarily the most fun because it's a little grunt worky, but but I think, you know, we got problems. And just it's dumb that we still have to fight for stuff like getting paid the same thing for the same job, but there it is. So that's probably probably the one that can affect the most change. Hmm. 
All right. Yeah. Another interesting answer. Mm-hmm. How about you? Whew. Um, I mean, it's not really fair since you already came up with the question, but. <laughs> yeah. It's still a hard question. I'm going to say my my favorite part is probably interacting with the community so figuring out what the community needs and then helping make that happen. Okay. Because uh, that's something I did at Penn State too with even just our local lab and geophysics community of, okay, what tools are needed? Let's make those tools. Uh, I think one of the most important parts is documentation. Huh. Uh, and I'm not just saying that in reference to my current job, which obviously it's important to document software and tools, but documentation of what you've done in a way that it can be reused. Because there's a lot of research data out there that will never be touched again by other than the people that collected it because the notes and the data curation are so poor that that money's lost. That's very interesting. So I think, I think you have a community service responsibility to make sure that the data you collect is usable to other people than you and that it's discoverable. Huh. That is, that's not surprising, but that's put very eloquently in terms of, you know, (laughs) I've used the word version control in a conversation today. I thought you'd be proud of me. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And the person said, I don't know what that is, but it sounds important. <laughs> so you say it's very important. <laughs> and like, and, and last week, see, you, you're rubbing off on me already. Because last week when I sat down at the magnetometer, I said, I'm going to write down exactly what I'm doing. So anyone can pick this up and do it again. And so I can pick it up and do it again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is not something that has ever been implemented in our lab. <laughs> well, so. and it doesn't have to be arduous. I mean, I'm not yes. talking about writing a book about everything you do. There are things that are as simple as we need to do some day reduction. So some some very basic step. Let's say for your magnetometer, how you take some weird proprietary file that comes out of the magnetometer <laughs> and get it to where you can open it in whatever tool you're going to use, Excel, whatever. Mm-hmm. Turn on, you know, go download a free screencasting app, turn it on. And as you're doing it, just narrate what you're doing and throw that up on YouTube. Sure, it'll get 20 hits in the next year. (laughs) But those 20 people that searched for that and watched you do it with that piece of software or whatever you were doing and described the process are going to buy you a beer if they ever see you. So this just happened. Um, (laughs) That's crazy that you say that because that's not something I would ever think to do. But I was, to go back to another show, I was having a discussion with uh, Lauren Hirschap about using their new Brunton design for an orienter for taking paleomag samples. Right. And so she had a whole bunch of questions for me. And then she found this YouTube video and she goes, is this what you do? And I said, yes, it was someone just videoing them taking an orientation, which I never would have thought to do. And she's like, we had this all wrong. She said, I did not understand at all what this was until you explained it to me. And then I watched this video. And it's like that could that totally changed how they were designing this entire tool. And so that was that's very interesting. Well, and I mean, there there are some of these that I have locally on my machine 
that were for little pieces of software that I wrote during grad school to help me get through <laughs> and to do data analysis. <laughs> it was data analysis that I did maybe once a year. Mm-hmm. So I have a five-minute video sitting in the folder with the script that's me explaining to myself how to use it. And mm-hmm. once a year, I'm really thankful for that video. <laughs> uh, when people are guests on the show, it's the same thing. We could send three pages of notes, but instead we send a couple paragraphs with a link to a YouTube video that says how we do the recording and set up for the show. Okay. Yeah. So document. It doesn't have to be mean writing a book. <laughs> pictures on your cell phone that's all it takes sometimes yeah you better you better put those cell phone pictures somewhere else though that usually gets lost i have a feeling yeah i mean you can upload to dropbox from your cell phone automatically now so yeah i've even done that and if i can do it there you go (laughs) so document 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 that is the most important community service i think that's great that's fantastic um i did when i was ruminating about this i guess i will say that um I also feel like this whole service thing, you know, just like you said, John, it gets checked off on this box of like, okay, yeah, you did that. Um, but, you know, it's it's really important to justify not just to everyone else why you're doing this job, but also to yourself because it's hard to take a look at yourself and say, I'm doing a good job and this has a point or I'm not. Um, there's a lot of people that are very, because I feel like, once you get that tenure and you just sit around and do whatever you want. Well, that's not true. That's not true for 99% of people, I'm sure. But it's still a good idea to come back and take a look at what you're doing from a sort of outside yourself perspective and say, this is worth something to the community. I, I really agree. And I guess a CV is one place to do that. A lot of times you have to keep track of things for like your yearly faculty activity yeah. report. Um, but just open the notes app on your phone or on your computer and keep a list of what you're doing. And it's really nice to go be able to go back and look at it and say, oh, wow, you know, I, I did these things this year and I feel good about that. Or I did these things too. And I don't feel so good about those. What can we do to make that better? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, or you can put it in another Moleskine notebook or your bullet journal or something. Yes, yes. Whatever system works for you, post-its exactly. on the wall. Exactly. Yep. So, well, you know, speaking of documenting, <laughs> I think we should move to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Yay! Paper Friday. I don't know if you could hear my little bitty bear and there. <laughs> this is something that <laughs> was documented. Uh <laughs> It's one of those I'm going to have trouble connecting to <laughs> a lot of things, I'm afraid. But it's called Walking Like Dinosaurs. Chickens with Artificial Tails Provide Clues About Non-Avian Theropod Locomotion by Grossi et al. Oh, man. Um, so speaking of documenting, uh, I have a document of my favorite, uh, you know, my favorite figures and papers, and this one might move up the list. Yeah, so this paper, you can get to it. The PDF's free. Link in the show notes. Go click on it. Immediately scroll to figure one, which is on page three. That's all. And you will see a picture of a chicken labeled control, a chicken labeled counterweight, which is a chicken with a weight on its back, and a chicken labeled experimental, which has a 
artificial tail it stuck looks on like its a rear. blunder. <laughs> and basically yep, was. Basically was. Okay, so this is, again, something you can laugh about, or you can delve in here and figure out that there's actually quite a bit of very impressive science happening here, right? Right. Um, so <laughs> the idea was that we, we can't study how dinosaurs and other of these non-avian theropods <laughs> walked or moved around, how they locomoted. So... What can we look at? Well, modern birds aren't great because they're weighted differently. They stand differently. They move using different muscles. But what if they didn't? Right. So, I mean, we have trackways, which are the ways. I mean, so a trackway is just footprints, basically, of a dinosaur, but not just one or not just one, but a whole bunch of them. So biologists generally can look at these trackways and start to say, okay, well, in order for these feet to have made this mark, this is how the bone structure had to work, something like this. And so we basically have these sort of two branches. We've got modern birds and modern reptiles. Neither one of them are very good, just like John just said. So how can we make which ones, how can we make one better to try to figure out what dinosaurs look like walking um because we've got some really good ideas based on their bones and based on these trackways um but chickens don't look like this when they walk and we know that birds not you know non-avian so not these flying ones um birds are really closely related and crocodiles don't look like it so how can we try to study this and this is (laughs) this is where we got so chickens um (laughs) It's so hard to talk about with a straight face. I'm so sorry. Right. <laughs> um, so chickens are, you know, they're bipedal. They have this fully erect posture, um, but which is obviously not true for most reptiles, right? So they seem like a better thing to study to try to talk about how theropods walked around. Right. But <laughs> they definitely use different main muscle groups and they don't stand in quite the same way so one of the ideas for why this could be was that the center of gravity for these theropods was different because well they had tails really long whip-like tails that were you know the length of their bodies um and so not just they had tails but how their tails worked made their ontogeny how their sort of body shape became how it is it affected it right so chickens today are their bipedalism or how they walk is often characterized as knee driven they said so most of their hind limb movement is activated by their knee flexion and their hamstring muscles whereas we think that these non-avian bipedal dinosaurs these theropods were had more vertical femurs because their center of mass was further back because of the fact that they had these tails and that when they walked, it was more hip driven and so driven by a different muscle than chickens. So how can you make a chicken more hip driven? Can you make a chicken more hip driven as opposed to knee driven like they are today? And one way to try it would be to give a chicken a tail. (laughs) 
Um, oh, so now these um, Grossi et al. is not the first, and this goes back to John's important part, point about documentation and that nice segue, is that there was a previous study done where these two researchers attached artificial tails to chickens, which changed their center of mass, and they hoped to recreate sort of the way theropods moved. Um, but it actually kind of backfired, um, and there was no change in the kinematics. It actually made their femurs more horizontal as opposed to vertical, and so it didn't work out at all. And Grossi et al. modified this study, and they started to attach these tails as these chickens grew up, and so therefore, um, and let them go out and exercise like a normal chicken always would, and so this changes how the ontogeny sort of presents itself. Right. And so they they put these tails on when they were very young chicks, and they updated them frequently so that they were always about 15% of the body mass of the chicken. And to make sure that it wasn't just the extra mass, they had one group that just wore what boils down to a weight right. vest. A little chicken weight that added fifteen percent body mass. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and you know we talked about the lever rule recently, right? The yeah. lever rule, and it applies here too because if you put this fifteen percent of the body mass with you know its center of gravity somewhere further behind the chickens, then it's going to move the chicken's center of gravity fifteen percent of the difference between the two. Right. Exactly. Very similar thing. So they put this on. The chicken center of gravity moves back, and it makes the chicken stand and walk differently. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I thought this initially sounded pretty mean, but, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, they and I was like, I don't know if this is necessarily, you know, okay, but it sounds like they've gone to all the all the things to make sure these chickens, you know, this isn't uncomfortable. It says, they say in here, there's no ill effects or distress in either one of them. Um, And so what makes it so interesting is that, you know, the presence of those artificial tails, which were very carefully sculpted to each chicken, you know, it's not just this stick they stuck on the end of them. Um, Well, it's a stick with a glove. It is, but (laughs) it's shaped to each individual chicken's (laughs) velvet kirtle, it says. (laughs) Yes. Um, they're artisanal exactly. tails. Exactly. Locally made. Um, so, and they did some, they did some videoing, not high speed videoing because they wanted these chickens to walk slowly, but there is videoing in here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it changed, it changed how their legs worked. Yeah. So they, they monitored or they measured the femur angle in each frame as they were moving and the control and the control weight they have the same slope, mm-hmm. but they're just a small offset. But the experimental chicken, <laughs> the experimental chicken with the tail, it has a slope that's different by a factor of at least two. Right. So, you know, it's not just that center of mass, but um, I guess the whole, the presence of the tail in general is going to change it enough that they think that this is a pretty good... Um, relation to these to this theropod locomotion right and you know it's interesting towards the end of the paper they say that it's recently been shown 
that they think the center of mass position change wasn't driven necessarily mm-hmm. by the tail, but by the enlargement of right. the forelimbs. Mm-hmm. And they say, ideally, we could have increased the tail mass and reduced pectoral limb mass. But unfortunately, this is not experimentally it's- feasible. <laughs> right. I thought that was a, that was a pretty good uh, point. <laughs> Right. Um, yes. <laughs> and it says that, you know, that when we talk about like, okay, this seems ridiculous, but it's, they back it all up with, you know, people have talked about using mammals instead to study bipedal dinosaur locomotion because it's so different than reptiles and it's so different than modern chickens. But now you've basically made this, this cute little theropod chicken now <laughs> without all the, without all <laughs> the killing of Deinonychus. Um, <laughs> and there you go. Yeah. So an interesting study and something that somebody looked at the results of the previous studies and said, I think the way they raised the chickens maybe wasn't quite right. And they did the study again and got right. a different result. Exactly. So there you go. Making sure you document well and, and you can do something that actually has, you know, an outcome good for a whole lot of different biological scientists right there. Yes, and there are links to supplemental videos. Uh, video S1, you can watch the control and experimental chicken yep. walking. <laughs> and then you can pretend like that it's a little velociraptor coming to kill you. It's very scary. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yes, you should definitely go check out the video, which is linked at the bottom of the page with the link to the PDF. Yes, yes you should. Uh, these... Chickens look They do, ridiculous. and we have to point out, you know, they have to get plucked so you can actually do the um, experimental measurements, so. Yeah, so they can do the, right. the motion tracking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. I mean, this is a big deal, you know? I mean, children of uh, the Jurassic Park era, like me, this is a big deal to talk about dinosaurs being birds as opposed to being reptiles, and so this is a pretty interesting piece in that puzzle, I thought. Yeah, and I thought it was a neat way to study how something that doesn't exist anymore yes, could have exactly. moved. Without having to do all yeah. that DNA recreation and all that jazz. Yeah, we know exactly. how that ends. <laughs> so <laughs> that is your Fun Paper Friday. If you have fun paper or photos or feedback for us, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Shannon, how can they get hold of us? Uh, well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon <laughs> Doolin. And we're always hanging out in the Slack chat room on the uh, Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.